Well, thank you, Ben, for praying for us and reading the scriptures. Um, Milestone launched this past Friday night, and it was an exciting meeting. Uh, was Bob and I were so encouraged to see all the young people there gathered to uh, serve the body and serve the Lord in a significant way, and we're really encouraged by just the hearts of our young people and ask the body to be continually in prayer for uh, this ministry. We really believe God's going to mightily bless it. Our FOF class is coming up again, as our Elder Bob mentioned. I think it's our 13th membership class. New uh, New Zai. It's Zai class. Uh, Greek alphabet. Uh, October 27th. And you might ask, James, why do we have a membership class? Um, and especially, why is it a long membership class? 13 weeks of key doctrines of the Christian faith. Well, I have many reasons. I'll just give you three. The Bible commands us to give the right hand of fellowship to all believers. Meaning, a Christian, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, their culture, if, if a the person is a Christian, then he or she is a spiritual family. We are commanded to love, to embrace um, the unity that we exist with every believer. But in this day and age, every guy and his cousin is a Christian, right? From the Mormon church, the Roman Catholic church, Joe Witnesses, to just liberal churches, everybody claims to be a Christian. So how do we know, right? So a key way is, do you agree with these doctrines? Do you agree in the Trinity? Do you agree in the deity of Christ? Do you believe in that one is saved not just by profession of, uh, of, of, a, of a prayer, but a genuine heartfelt repentance of sin and cleaving to Christ for salvation? Do you believe in the authority of Scripture? I mean, do you believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? I mean, all these doctrines are critical critical doctrines that a believer, a Christian, must embrace. And that is the first reason we have uh, this membership process, to make sure that a believer believes this thing, these truths, so that we can embrace him or her in the faith. Secondly, we want you to know what we teach as a church. We want you to know that these are the doctrines that are held firmly by the leaders of Cornerstone Bible Church. And this is what will be taught in the pulpit, second hour, in our Sunday schools, in Milestone, during midweek flock, these are the truths that we hold to, adhere to, and that will be taught, so that you know what you're getting into. And thirdly, I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but unity, any unity apart from truth is a false unity. We want to emphasize the unity that we have as Christians is based upon truth. It's based upon the Word of God. So you could have the same preference as me, same hobbies, same likes and dislikes. But if our unity is not based upon Scripture, it's not a true unity. And as, as leaders, we definitely want to be united together in the Lord. And that is why we teach the Word of God. We teach these fundamental doctrines because we want of our hearts, we want our minds to be of one mind according to the Word of God. Well, if you are interested in signing up, please talk to the fur codes. Um, and we have an exciting, a real great curriculum. We have some new teachers, first ever teachers teaching FOF. Look forward to a gr- another great session. Talk to them if you have any questions and any needs. What about if you pray one more time before we get into our study this morning?
Father, we thank you for these doctrines, these truths that teach us, that, that guide us, that equip us, ultimately grant us faith to believe in you and to be saved. We know that were it not for the Bible, we'll be hopelessly lost in sin. Left to ourselves, we'll be mired in error, mired in lies. And our, ultimately, we will not know you. Lord, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for its truth. And Lord, may we, um, as we study this morning, learn these truths in the Word of God. May we be doers of God's Word, not just fill our heads with knowledge, but may we apply these truths to every area of our lives, that through our lives we might bring honor and glory to you. Thank you for this time, and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I didn't plan it this way, but if you've been keeping track, this is our fourth study in the book of Romans, the past four weeks. And I pray that one day God will allow us to do a four-year study through this epistle of Romans, Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. Uh, but even though we've only spent four weeks in Romans, I say, I am convinced that if we commit our, our lives and our faith to the words of these pages, I truly believe that we will be forever transformed and changed. That if you would only open your heart this morning, you would only apply your faith and trust these words, I am thoroughly convinced that revival will occur in your hearts, in your families, in your lives. Now I say this because of the effect this book, this book of Romans has had in men and women throughout church history. It's been a pivotal book used mightily by our God. It is amazing how it's been so instrumental in impacting countless lives of the kingdom of God. You look at church history, most, if not all the great revivals and reformations in the history of the church can be directly linked to this book of Romans. For example, in the summer of A.D. 386, a a native of North Africa who had been a two-year professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy. He sat weeping in the garden of his friend, contemplating the wickedness of his life. He was weeping. He was in great mourning because he was utterly unsuccessful in trying to turn from his immoral life. He tried to turn away from sin, and he could not. He was enslaved to sin. While sitting there weeping, he heard a child singing, Tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. It struck him that that is something that he ought to do. He picked up an open scroll of the book of Romans that was laid beside him and he began to read Romans 13, 13 through 14. It read, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That man later wrote of that occasion, quote, No further would I read, nor did I need to read. For instantly as the sentence ended, by a light as it were, security was infused into my heart. All the gloom and doubt vanished away. End quote. That man was Aurelius Augustine, 
who upon reading those verses from the book of Romans, he trusted in Christ, became a Christian. And we know he went on to become one of the outstanding theologians in the history of the church. Just over a thousand years later, a Roman Catholic monk and professor of sacred theology named Martin Luther was teaching the book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. As he carefully studied the text, he became more and more convicted by Paul's central theme of justification by faith alone. From November of 1515 to September 1516, he daily spent time in understanding this one epistle. Through his study, he landed on one verse, Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. He wrote, quote, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous. And he deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped that truth. That the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, He justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn. To have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, whereas before, the righteousness of God had filled me with hate. It now became to me inexpressibly sweet and great a love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven, end quote. As Martin Luther's testimony, he was saved by the book of Romans, and need I say what contribution he has made to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, several centuries later, an ordained minister in the Church of England by the name of John Wesley was similarly confused about the meaning of the gospel. He had returned to England. He came to Georgia as a missionary. He utterly failed. He came back to England utterly dejected because he was a failure as a missionary. He was walking to the streets of London one day and he reluctantly entered a church in Aldersgate Street. Now, the small church, so small. They didn't even have a pastor. So one of the deacons was reading Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. This is what Wesley wrote in his journal. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. End quote. So it was at Aldersgate Street, upon the reading of a commentary by Luther on the book of Romans, John Wesley was saved, and he made again another great contribution to the church. Well, 200 years Last one, 20 years later, a very confused and non-Christian college student was sitting in a Bible study in La Mirada, California. His Bible study leader was trying to teach him from Romans chapter 7, trying to help him understand the struggle of a person with sin according to Romans 7. Well, that confused college student, non-Christian college student, he wasn't listening. 
He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. His eyes began to wander to the pages of Romans, and then he landed on Romans 5, 3 through 5, where Paul says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Those words struck his heart with force. He could not take his eyes off of verse 5 where it says, Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He couldn't take his eye off of verse 5 because he had been disappointed by everything. Disappointed by life. By himself. In his own sinfulness. He had no hope. And the guarantee of hope affirmed by God's love moved him that night, with his eyes to Romans 5, 3 through 5, he repented of his sins. He trusted in Christ and he was saved. I know that story because I was that confused, sinful, non-Christian college student. And God used the book of Romans to grant me salvation. That is why this book is near to my heart. Because God granted me salvation from within its pages. Beloved brethren, whether you are a non-Christian reading the book of Romans for the first time, or if you're a mature believer who is well-versed in the truth of this book, I am a firm conviction that if you will only open your heart and only just take, take these words seriously, I truly believe these truths will be powerful to you. Well, we can go on and on. But we need to get to our study in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Talking about spiritual growth. I raised that question. You guys remember from last week? You guys remember that far? Right? About spiritual growth. I want to again ask you that same question. Are you serious about spiritual growth? If you are not, forget it. Don't even start. You know, spiritual growth is like a marathon. If you start a marathon and if you say to yourself, you know, I'm going to just try it out. If I start sweating, I'm going to quit. If my makeup starts to run, I'm going to sit out. If I start to cramp or if my muscles start to weigh heavy, I'm going to opt out. You might as well not start. You're not going to make it. You have to have the mentality. Unless I, even if I die, I don't know about Vargas' statement on the boxing ring. Right? I'd rather die than lose. I don't know. He, well, he lost. Right? But that's a write-off mentality. You should have that kind of mindset going into a boxing ring, running a marathon, and seeking to grow in Christ. You need to have that mentality. If you don't, then you might as well not even start. Because you are certainly not going to finish. Well, I want to ask you, are you serious about your Christian growth? If you're not, isn't it about time that you got serious about your spiritual growth. If you are, then open your hearts with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1. And I want to read just a few more verses um, than what Bent read. Romans 12, 1 through 8. Let's read one more time. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the need of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Our first point that we covered, first three points we covered last week. The first one comes from verse 2. Paul commands us to achieve spiritual growth. Determination alone will not do it. Commitment, willingness to suffer alone will not do it. You need to have a right strategy. And the first strategy is to renew your mind. Not to be conformed to the ways of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because that's where the battle occurs. Our mindset, our attitude, our belief system. Where when our belief system is transformed, it will move from our head to our hearts to our hands. Christianity is not behavior modification. It's not trying harder. It's understanding truth. Where we replace wrong attitudes, wrong beliefs, wrong doctrines with the truth of God's Word. We need to throw away our old ideas and experiences and views of God, of the church, and of the world and replace them with the Word of God. We don't want to just jump into Christianity with our old belief system and thinking if we just try harder, we'll make it. No, we need to start internally. That old adage, that old maxim, private victories precede public victories. The war, the struggle, the battle occurs within. You do it by replacement. Replacing Wrong doctrine, error, lies with right doctrine, with truth. Know that it's a process. That's the overarching command. Renew your mind. The first attitude we looked at was from verse 1. The attitude of presenting one's whole life as a worship to God. The attitude of presenting one's whole life as a worship to God. This is a key, central, and foundational attitude for the believer. I tell you guys again, if you forget everything I say this morning, remember one thing, remember this. That the first attitude, the first belief that we need to have as believers, is that our whole lives are to be sacrificed, as living sacrifices, pleasing to God, that this is our spiritual act of worship. It's the attitude of, Submitting our whole lives to God. Laying oneself completely on the altar as a sacrifice to God. It's about not just giving Sundays to the Lord. Or Wednesday nights or Thursday nights. It means giving seven days a week, 24-7, living for Christ. It doesn't mean having a dichotomized life. Secular, 
and sacred. Where your faith is God, but your finances, your family, your relationships with the world, your work belongs to the world. It's the mindset that all of it belongs to God and you lay it down on the altar of Christ and you present it to Christ. The second attitude comes from the third adjective, pleasing to God. Present your lives as a living sacrifice, that it is pleasing to God. The second attitude talks about our motivations, the motivation behind our worship, where we give our lives not for ourselves, not for our own pleasure, but to please God. This goes to the heart of the matter, our motivations, asking the question, what drives me? What is motivating me to serve Christ? To give my life over to the Lord. It is to say no to hypocrisy. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Saying yes to genuine and sincere faith. Yes, I want to give my life to Christ. But for the right reasons. The third attitude is found in verse 3. By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you want, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Paul is saying the measure of faith is that faith given to all believers that we are saved not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ alone. He's saying that our lives, our attitude, our, our, what we think should be consistent with that. Consistent with that doctrine that God saved us by grace and mercy, not of ourselves. And that that ought to produce genuine humility contriteness of spirit, brokenness of spirit, whereupon that truth deals a death blow to our pride, our arrogance, our self-righteousness, that is done away with. We set that aside. That is conforming to the world. We are transformed by this truth. And we are humble. These are the first three attitudes that I covered last week. This is all just introduction. Today, we'll probably have time to cover two. There are three here. The first three attitudes are directed towards God, our relationship with God. The next three are horizontal attitudes, attitudes that are directed in terms of our relationship with one another and our relationship with the world. They're horizontal in nature. The fourth attitude, the first one towards the body, is the unity of the body. The fourth attitude is having the mindset of unity of the body. Look with me in verse 4. Verse 4 and 5. Paul says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, In verse 5, Paul employs one of his favorite metaphors for the church. The metaphor of the church as being the body of Christ. And he says that this body is one body. It's united. It is one in essence, one in nature. Paul says this because this was a prayer of Christ. Unity of the church was important to Christ. John 17, 11, Christ said, Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. His prayer was that his disciples, the believers, were united in heart and spirit. Just as the Father and Son were united, that was his prayer for the church. 
It was important to Christ and it is important to Paul and he makes that a priority for the believers. That as we relate to one another, the first attitude, the first priority that we must have is upholding the unity that we believers have in Christ. If you will turn with me to the book of Philippians. We started our worship by reading that reading a passage from the book of Philippians. Um, we will be studying through this book together as a church in the coming year. Um, you will find in our study together that in many ways, the church at Philippi was a model church. It was a great church filled with real solid Christians. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, concerning that group of believers, He writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. That statement alone and others in the first chapter indicate that there was a special relationship between the apostle and the church at Philippi. A special relationship. But as Paul's letter to them progresses, we we begin to see some hints that the relationships among the church members were not all that God wanted them to be. He had a great relationship with the church, but within the church, there was division, discord, and disunity. For example, Paul exhorts them in verse 27 of chapter 1, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes on to write in chapter 2, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It becomes apparent that the Christians at Philippi were not as unified as they should have been. They were not. In fact, it seems likely that there was bitterness, resentment, and open conflict between some of these members. Now, this suspicion is confirmed in chapter 4, 2, and 3, Paul names specifically two women that are at odds with one another in the church of Christ. Verse 2, chapter 4, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, loyal workmen, fellow workers, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. You notice that? Here Paul, the apostle, doesn't order them. He doesn't command them to be of the like mind, of the same mind. You know, he's kind of like, he's come to an end. He can't force unity. He can't order their hearts to be changed. Will you guys get along? I'm the apostle, sent by Christ. I order you. He doesn't do that. Paul, the apostle, gets on his knees and he pleads to Euodia. He turns to Syntyche and he begs her that they would be of the same mind, that they would agree. You know, we don't know the nature of their conflict, but we know that it was serious enough that Paul has to address it publicly because the division between Euodia and Syntyche were not just hurting them, their relationship. It wasn't isolated, but it was harmful to the whole church. And you want to notice that these these women, they weren't immature believers. They were definitely not non-Christians. Paul describes them in verse 3 as those who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. 
Paul worked alongside of them. They were his co-workers. He was also confident that they were true Christians. Verse 4. Because Paul referred to these two women as part of a group whose names are written in the book of life. So these are Christian women. These are women in ministry. These are women who are mature in Christ. And yet, there was discord. There was, there was division. There was disunity. And their disunity affected and contaminated, corrupted the whole church at Philippi. So from this we learn that conflict can occur between any two Christians. Then if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been maturing in the faith, you know, when you're a young Christian you think, we sing these songs, we love one another. Love and tolerance, you know, we accept one another in unity. But, you know, uh, reality comes pretty quick, doesn't it? That just because we're Christians doesn't mean, you know, everything's great. Like, it doesn't all end like the, the Brady Bunch episode where everybody kind of unites at the end. The reality comes that even among Christians, even among mature Christians who are leading, who are serving the church, there can be disunity. We also learn that disunity and dissension can happen in any church body. No matter how faithful they are to the Lord, no matter how well they know their doctrine, how joyful they are in Christ, division can happen in any church. It can happen in Philippi, it can happen anywhere and definitely can happen at Cornerstone. This unity here, it's not a when, but it, it's not if, but when. Right? That's the reality. When is division, disunity, discord going to happen at Cornerstone? That's a fearful thing. thing that, it ought to cause us to be humble, right? Cause us to be sober. Because nothing devastates the church like division. You know, maybe you can identify with this. When I was young, I remember my parents getting into arguments and fighting. And when I was a young boy, second grade, I don't know how, but I knew the word divorce. And I was so afraid. I didn't want my parents to argue. I wanted them, I wanted them to, be, to agree, to be of the same mind. And even as a two, second grade you know, a young boy, I, I felt the devastating effect of division in the family. Well, same thing in the church. Division in the church is devastating. There is no greater force of destruction in the body of Christ. A church that is torn and divided by jealousy, pride, and, and simply sin is the worst thing to experience in the church. It's simply the worst. I would say that in my 11, 12 years of ministry, Nothing is more discouraging in the life of the church than internal strife, disharmony. That is why, to Christ, unity is so important. And that is why it was important for Paul and for every Christian here. A priority when you relate to one another. What's most important? What's the first attitude we have towards one another? It's unity. Preserving that unity. It's not about who's right or wrong. It's not about preferences. It's not about opinions. All these things are to be laid aside because the priority as believers is to preserve the unity that we have in Christ. Well, if unity is so important, how can we preserve that unity? All right, James, okay, I, I, I'm sold. 
I agree with you, but how can we make this happen? How can we preserve unity in the body of Christ? Do we hold hands and sing kumbaya until people are reconciled? Right? Do we uh, impose uniformity? A lot of ministries do this, right? They lay down laws and rules to impose not unity, but uniformity. Right? You know, wear certain clothes, hairstyles, I don't know, just all these rules to encourage uniformity. Those are all superficial approaches to unity. And they're all unbiblical. The key to unity, again, is internal. It's not external. Again, it is right attitude. It is right kind of thinking. Paul instructs Yodi and Syntyche, look at verse 2, to agree with one another. To agree with each other. The literal translation of the Greek text is to be of the same mind. If you guys have a Greek New Testament, you go there, there's just two words in the Greek. The same mind. There's no sense of agreeing or come to an agreement. I flee with Yodi Syntyche to have the same mind. One mind. That is the answer. That is the way to have unity. Now, is Paul saying that we have to think exactly alike, all Christians? That we can't be individuals? We can't have our own preferences, our own opinions, our unique personalities? No, that's not what Paul's saying at all. We want to be different. We want to be diverse. When Paul says, have the same mind, he explains what he means in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Same idea, by having the same mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And here is verse 5. Here is the same mind that Paul is pointing to. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The same mind that God wants us to have in the church is not James Shin's mind. It's not everybody agree with me. Everybody agree with Bob. Or some ideology or some creed or some rules and laws. What Paul has in mind is our minds should conform to the mind of Christ have the same mind as the mind of Christ. Christ's attitude was to serve, that others are more important than himself, that he came to seek to care for the needs of others before he sought to care for his own needs. It's the mind of humility. That's the attitude we we ought to have, we are to have in the church. That is why it requires everyone. We must work hard to preserve unity and prevent conflict. You know, this past year, for the first time in Cornerstone history, relationships in our church have been tested like never before. Right? Don't go around and say, what are you talking about? You know, you know. If you don't know, praise God. Right? This, this unity, discord, and division became a reality in varying degrees to many of us at Cornerstone where people got together and it wasn't encouraging. It was discouraging. People were stumbled because of their relations in the church. There was actual talk of disunity, talk of some leaving the church because of relational issues, personality issues. 
These things have tested all of us whether our commitment to unity was just lip service or tested whether we have a genuine covenant with one another before a holy God. And I rejoice. As elders, we both rejoice that by God's grace, we are passing the test. That we are upholding the bond of unity that we have in Christ. And we are fighting some days better than others, but we are all be fighting to preserve the unity that we have in Christ. So, it's been a tough year in terms of that. But again, with Paul, Bob and I appeal to you guys. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought, we cannot command you. We cannot order you. All we can do is beg and plead that you have the same mind, the mind of Christ. Well, lack of time, so we'll go to our last attitude. This is the fifth attitude in Romans 12, the second attitude towards one another. And that attitude is uh, we all have different gifts. And we must use them to serve the body. We must use them to serve the body. After unity comes serving the church. And the old attitude was, I have nothing to offer. Or, I don't feel like serving. I am not going to serve. Now, service is optional. You know, if I have time, you know, if, if I can fit it into my busy schedule, I'll serve the church. Or serving the church is not my responsibility. Isn't that why we hire these guys? Right? That's not my job. I'm here to, I, I've come to be served. Those are attitudes that are conforming to the world. That's not biblical attitudes. Paul says in Romans 12, 6 through 8, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. Contributing, let him meet the need of others. Generous, leadership, mercy. Let him all do it diligently and cheerfully. Paul here is not just listing off gifts. He is exhorting each member of the church to use his or her own gift diligently and faithfully to strengthen the body's unity and to help it to flourish. From this passage, we learn that, that ministry as a Christian is not an option. That every single Christian has been given grace from God. And God has given that Christian grace to serve the church, to build up, edify the church. Every Christian, from the day-old Christian, the Christian who is Aged are to join in this service. You know, people, visitors and leaders, other Christian leaders talk about Cornerstone. They visit our church and they tell us all the time how we have so many workers. Man, you guys have so, really, we do. I mean, all these new ministries that are, being, that are going on, they're continuing. I mean, it's all being done by lay workers. And they ask me, how do you do that? How do you get these people to serve? Do you twist their arms? You like, you know, get Bob to talk to him on a corner on a on an alley some night, and you know, 
Get, well, how do you do this? You know, I say, why? We don't do any, any such thing. How do we do it? Because we have so many Christians. We focus on salvation. We focus on preaching the gospel. We focus on preaching Christ. We focus on the jugular thing of, of proclaiming Christ and praying that God will save people because once people are saved, once people are Christians, they serve. It's a natural outgrowth, a natural overflow of their love for Christ. They serve the church. Why do we have so many workers? It's because we have Christians in the body. What happens when the members of a church faithfully exercise their spiritual gifts in ministry? What happens? Well, first of all, the church becomes unified. The church becomes strong. Many churches experience disunity because this guy was supposed to step up and teach the truth. This gal was supposed to reach out and love and minister to a, to a, to a person. All those things were supposed to happen, but because people weren't exercising spiritual gifts, there was disunity and the church was weak. Second result, the church will become mature and wise, and everyone practices and serves with their spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, for ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God gave gifts to the church whereupon where believers exercise their spiritual gifts results in the church being mature no longer being infants, being tossed back and fro by every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness of men, they grow up into Christ. That's a direct consequence of believers serving in the church. And the third result, the church becomes effective and successful. The church becomes effective and successful. And going back to our previous point, that's another cure for division. Another cure for disunity is for believers to roll up their sleeves and serve. You ever notice, uh, sorry sisters, but that's second illustration wise, the guy that complains about playing defense is the guy that doesn't play defense. The guy who complains, man, you guys are ball hogs, is the guy who's a ball hog, is the guy who's shooting the most. Far too often in the church, the ones that are complaining are the ones who are not serving. The ones that are critical are the ones who aren't doing everything. People that are serving the church are too busy serving Christ to be distracted by the petty things, shallow things, superficial things in this world. But ultimately, critics don't matter. Right? Critics are nothing. You can complain and criticize. You are zero. You are nothing. This past Friday in Milestone Ministry, I shared this quote by our former president, Theodore Roosevelt, and I share it with you. This is what he says. It is not the critic who counts. 
not the person who points out where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the devotions, and spends himself or herself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and at worst, at least fails knowing that he or she dared greatly so that his or her place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Man, I love that quote. Critics do not count. But the person who says, hey, you could have done that better, he or she doesn't count. The credit goes to the person who is in the arena, whose face is marred and scarred in the struggle. And if they succeed, great. If they fail, that's fine. At least they were in the struggle for a noble cause. And what more nobler cause is there in the world than serving Christ in His church? Just a few final thoughts to close our time. Do you have the attitude that this is one body? By your attitude, by your words, are you sowing seeds of discord, seeds of division and disunity? Or by your attitude and by your words, are you strengthening the church's unity? Are you building us up? Or are you tearing us down? Secondly, are you serving Christ? Are you serving the church? If you're a Christian and you're not serving the church, you're robbing God. You've stolen your hands, your feet, your brain, your strength, your talents, your knowledge, your life. You're robbing God because that belongs to God. All those things belong to Him. And God's intention for our lives is to serve the church. To use your gifts your talents, your experiences, your knowledge, His intention is it belongs to the church. Using it for His glory to build the church. Thirdly, let's be reminded that all of this is in view of God's mercy. It's not, okay James, good points. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and work hard in unity and service. No. All of this is in response to God's mercy, right? Verse 1, therefore, in view of God's mercy, what motivates us to preserve the unity? What motivates us to serve the church? Third point is what motivates us to love one another? Look at God's mercy. Look at the cross. Look at what Christ did. The perfect Lamb of God came to earth with a perfect life and He died the most humiliating death, separate from God the Father. And He died on the cross for the church. He died for you and He died for me that we might be saved. And if we have experienced, if we have received that salvation, the appropriate response horizontally is in view of God's great mercy is to preserve the unity in the church. It is to serve the church and love one another. Let's pray.